to the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, we began five weeks ago a verse-by-verse expositional series through this very early New Testament letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And as we look at this second chapter, we are continuing a series I entitled Settled in Hope. Settled in Hope. This morning, as we arrive to this chapter, we're really getting to the very heart of the letter, the very heart of the reason Paul wrote to this church in Thessalonica, and that was to clear up some misunderstanding, really some false things that were being spread around. Therefore, since this is the heart of the letter, everything that preceded this section in 2 Thessalonians is really introductory, and everything that follows this section in 2 Thessalonians flows from the teaching we'll discover here. As such, we're going to slow down our pace just a bit here in chapter 2. I've entitled this message, Dispelling Rumors. Dispelling Rumors. Uh, Let me tell you about one such rumor. On September 26, 1901, the body of President Abraham Lincoln was exhumed. 36 years after he was assassinated, they exhumed the body of Abraham Lincoln. The reason they did that is because in those preceding 36 years, the body of President Lincoln would be exhumed and reburied not once, not twice, but 17 times. The reason being, grave robbers thought, you know, a great way for us to extort money is for us to steal the remains of Abraham Lincoln and hold his body as ransom for the United States government. The actual United States Secret Service foiled several attempts to do such a thing. So finally, in 1901, Abraham Lincoln's son had put together a process where they were going to finally bury Abraham Lincoln's remains encased in tons of concrete, protecting it from would-be robbers. As this would be the final burial of his remains, they wanted to make sure it was actually Abraham Lincoln in the coffin. You see, there were rumors swirling about that it wasn't Abraham Lincoln in that coffin, that at some point previously, in those previous 17 exhumations, that his body had been stolen. So here's what they did. They procured a couple of plumbers, and those plumbers cut through with their torches the lead-lined coffin to reveal the head and the shoulders of the person remaining in that coffin. And they selected 23 individuals to come by the coffin, single file, to look inside. Here's one of the eyewitness accounts. He said this, If you've ever seen a photograph of President Lincoln, you would have no doubt that was him. And he said there was this coarse black hair on the top of his head. They described the whiskers on his beard and even the wart on his cheek as being there. It was clearly visible. This was the remains of Abraham Lincoln. Not only that, he was wearing the very black suit that he was inaugurated in in his second inauguration and even his customary black bow tie. Finally, three decades later, with all the rumors swirling about, those rumors could be laid to rest with the remains of Abraham Lincoln encased in concrete. It's amazing how rumors, no matter how unfounded, no matter how ludicrous, can really shake and unsettle people. Now, of course, today, with our highly evolved intellects and our ubiquitous access to information, 
we would never be given over to ludicrous rumors, right? Of course we would. There's a large portion of the population in America that doesn't believe the Holocaust ever happened. Polls recently have said it's from 6 to 20% of Americans don't believe the moon landing actually happened. It was faked. These are rumors that we hear and we believe. And speaking of the moon, maybe you can remember uh, the one time whenever this particular rumor about the moon was spreading around, February 10th, 2018. On that date, it was said, because the moon was in a particular alignment, you could take your broom and stand it on its bristles up. You remember that? How many of you actually tried it when you saw those pictures? Be honest, I did. It works, it works. Guess what? It works every day of the year. It doesn't just have to be on February 10th. So these rumors, unfounded, circulate, and they spread. It wasn't just a problem in the 1800s around President Lincoln, and it wasn't just a problem today. It was a problem back in the first century at the time of the Apostle Paul. That's why I've entitled this series, Settled, Settle Down. There's all kinds of conspiracies and rumors and thoughts. Listen, we've got to settle. Why? Because we have a hope. We have a hope in the promise of the return of Jesus. And these first century Christians, they had become unsettled because they were shaken by rumors they had heard about the return of Christ. And Paul is writing to them precisely to put those rumors to rest once and for all. Again, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, this is the very heart of the letter, and we're going to spend several weeks looking at the heart of the letter. And so look with me, we're going to look at the introduction this morning, the first four verses of of chapter 2. The Bible says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, in the New Testament, there are really three main sources of New Testament teaching on what we might call the end times, what we might refer to as eschatology. That's the theological discipline of studying the end times. Uh, what we might talk about, the return of Jesus and all the sights and sounds connected to the return of Jesus. Those three main areas are the book of Revelation. It's apocalyptic in nature. Jesus is teaching in what's known as the Olivet Discourse, which is chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew and chapter 13 of Mark. And then Paul's writings to the church in Thessalonica, both first, both first Thessalonians and second Thessalonians contain really the magnum opus of Paul's teaching on the end times, Paul's teaching on eschatology. Uh, Paul first brought up this subject in 1 Thessalonians because there was some misunderstanding in the church regarding what happens to Christians who die before Christ returns. And so there was some concern. Okay, these people have died. They're Christians, but they died. They're going to miss it. And so Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to correct that errant thinking. You move a little further forward in 
in 1 Thessalonians, and Paul says, here's what you need to understand about the return of Jesus. He's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to be unexpected to the world around you. But then he says, but you're not children of the darkness, you're children of the light. Therefore, that day won't overtake you like a thief, like it will the world. You move to chapter 2, or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians, he makes the third point regarding the return of Jesus. In chapter 1, we saw over the last several weeks that Paul says the return of Jesus is going to come and he will recompense, he will repay those who afflict Christ's church and he will bring relief to the church and to the Christians who are suffering under affliction and persecution in this world. But now as we move to chapter 2, we're going to look at the really insightful thing that that Jesus has to say, or that Paul has to say about the return of Christ. This is the last section he will have on this subject. And again, this section, verses 1 through 12, is a response to a rumor that had been circulating in the church of Thessalonica to the effect, Jesus has already come back and you missed it. The gospel train came by and you missed the train. And so Paul's writing to correct this Thinking. Now, as we consider these four verses, I want to break it down really into three things I want us to consider, three realities. The first one is this. I want to think about the subject being considered. What is the specific subject matter, particularly with regard to the end times, eschatology, that Paul is writing to them about? He says it in verse 1. This is the introduction. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Now, this section contains the most pointed instruction about this subject. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. It is this subject that has captured the curiosity of millions of Christians throughout the centuries. Now, Paul says here is clearly what it is. Number one, the coming of Jesus. We believe Jesus is coming back. Why? Because the Bible teaches Jesus is coming back. Paul returns to the Greek word we considered in 1 Thessalonians, that Greek word parousia. It's just simply translated coming. The parousia, the coming of Jesus, is what Paul's talking about. Now, there's a couple things I want us to consider about this subject. First of all, I want us to think about the fact that it will be a spectacular coming. A spectacular coming. From other passages in the New Testament, from the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians, from the Olivet Discourse from Peter, we can know this is going to be a spectacular coming when Jesus does return. In fact, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus describes some of the sights and some of the sounds that will accompany his return. Let me just show you one of them. In Matthew 24, 27, Jesus says this, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man. Friends, it's going to be an astronomical display. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be visible, it's going to be clear, it's going to have cataclysmic sights and sounds. The Apostle Peter adds on to this description of what the cataclysmic sights are going to look like, what the cosmos is going to look like. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he writes this, waiting for and hastening the parousia, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Friends, when Jesus returns, there's not going to be any wonder. I wonder if Christ came back. I wonder if Jesus returned. When you see the heavenly bodies melting, you're going to know, ah, Jesus came back. It's going to be clear. It's going to be unmistakable 
because of the spectacular sights, but there will also be associated spectacular sounds. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul described really three sounds that will be associated with the return of Jesus, the parousia. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself, here it is, will descend from heaven, three sounds, a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. What is this? Well, the cry of command, that has a military ring to it, doesn't it? It's Jesus. Jesus is going to be giving the shout, the cry of command to gather the troops together. Not only the cry of command, but there's going to be the voice of an archangel. Anybody here besides me like watching the TV show, The Voice? Anybody? I'm the only one. Okay, sorry. So, or else you don't want to admit it, right? No, no, I don't watch that heathen stuff. So, and The Voice, if you've never seen the show... These blind auditions where these four famous judges listen, listen without seeing a singer, and they turn if they love the voice. And there's been many times I've watched it, and one of the judges will respond to a singer and say, boy, you have the voice of an angel. They've never heard the voice of an angel. See, when the voice of the archangel sounds, it's not going to turn four chairs. It's going to turn bodies in tombs. He's coming with the sound the cry of command. He's coming with the sound of the voice of the archangel. He's coming with the sound of the trumpet of God. Trumpets are loud, aren't they? Can you imagine how loud the trumpet of God is? When it blows, there's going to be no mistaking. Jesus has come back with the spectacular sights and the unmistakable, unambiguous sounds of his return. But what is going to be accomplished at that coming? Paul says, Paul tells us in the next phrase, he says this, there will be a gathered congregation. There's going to be a spectacular coming, but at that coming, there's going to be a gathered congregation. He says, now concerning the coming, the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. I want you to circle those two words on your outline, gathered together. It's a translation of a single Greek word, epi-synagogue. You've heard the word synagogue before, right? What is a synagogue? A synagogue was a Jewish congregation. A synagogue was really a, a preview of how the church would gather together in congregations. So the synagogue, the, the prefix epi just means over or upon. So it's an epi-synagogue. And that's the word he uses here. There's this gathered congregation. There's only one other place in the New Testament where epi-synagogue is used, and it's actually in Hebrews 10.25 when he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's epi-synagogue. It's a congregation. It's gathering together. But here, there's going to be a great congregation. And this great congregation that's gathered together will be from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people group, and it's going to comprise all people from all locations, from all times of church history. Paul described what's going to take place at that coming, at that moment when the voice of Jesus is resounding, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Notice what Paul said to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what happens. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Again, this is the great consummation of salvation. This is what it's all heading to, Christian. Salvation is just not what we see or what we feel or experience here. This is what we're looking to. This is the great blessed hope. 
the coming of Christ and the transformation of our lives. This is those gathered together in this grand congregation who have responded positively to the sovereign summons of God to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who will be gathered in this congregation. Now we know salvation has a past component, has a present component, and has a future component. We know that we have been saved from the penalty of our sin. We know that we are being saved even now through sanctification from the power of sin. But friends, there's coming a day when Christ returns, we will be saved from the presence of sin forevermore. This is the promise. This is the good news for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we don't look at this day with fear. We don't look at this day with dread. Just hold it off a little longer. No, we say hasten the day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the suffering, in the pain, give us our new resurrected body so that we can ever be with you. Now, one way to maintain this kind of settled hope that the Apostle Paul is encouraging here is to continually remind yourself of this truth. Your present faith is inseparable from this promised reality. Those who presently have faith in Jesus This is your promised future. I could point you to many places to show this truth. I'll just point you to what Jesus said in John 6. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For in every believer in Jesus Christ, that God the Father has given to God the Son, they will be raised by Jesus himself when he returns on the last day. And so this is the subject matter that Paul's talking about here. The parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. What a glorious day that will be. Here's the second thing I want us to consider. Not only the subject matter being considered, but secondly, the settling of their concerns. The settling of of their concerns. As we move into verse 2, we see this one phrase that really prompted this whole letter. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Paul's writing to dispel these rumors. Paul is writing to correct the errant thinking. Now, the first thing he dispels is this. Number one, a false attribution. There was a false attribution. I don't know about you, but I've had things falsely attributed to me you know what Troy said about such and such? And it gets back to me at some point through the rounds, and I say, I said nothing like that. That's false. That's not true. I've even had people, husbands, maybe you can identify this, or actually probably better wives you can identify with this. Didn't you say such and such? No, I didn't say that. What are you talking about? Sometimes we hear things that weren't really said. Now, this is kind of what's happening here with Paul. There was a false attribution towards him. Somebody was attributing some doctrinal statement some truth that was not really a truth at all it was false it was a falsehood what was the false statement here's what it is he says here's what's been attributed to me wrongly somebody by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us he, he says i don't know how this really came to you this false idea it may be one of three ways 
Maybe it came by a spirit. Most scholars that I read this week said what, what they think Paul means by a spirit is that someone came to them with a supposed prophetic utterance. By the word of the apostle Paul, I speak to you this. Or maybe by a spoken word. Somebody delivered a message. Hey, did you guys hear what Paul is preaching? That Jesus has already come back. Or, he says, maybe it came to you by a letter supposedly from us. I think this is why Paul concludes the letter of 2 Thessalonians with the specific way he does. Most of you probably know Paul was nearly blind, and in order to write his epistles, he would dictate them to a scribe who would write them down word for word. But normally what Paul did at the end of his letters is he would say, hey, let me see that that graph. Let me see that piece of paper. And he would sign his name and he would write a final greeting. Notice the final greeting in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It says this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness, genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. In other words, this is the seal of authenticity. If you get any letter and it doesn't have this in it, my signature, my seal, it ain't from me. And that's what Paul's saying here. So there is this false attribution that somehow this idea had come from Paul himself. He said, no, 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 this is not from me. Well, that leads to the second thing. Worse than the false attribution was a false assertion. The assertion was that from a spirit or spoken word or letter that Paul had said, the day of the Lord has come. Now again, remember the subject matter. What's the subject matter? The parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Some of you have received this false letter, this false assertion that the day of the Lord's already come, and they're saying it came from me. Now, you can see why this would be particularly unsettling, right? You can understand why Christians, if they're hearing from supposedly the authoritative Apostle Paul, the very one who founded this church, they're hearing this message, Jesus has already come back. Sorry, guys, you missed it. Why would this shake them up? Because they missed it. It's over. They're to be unsettled. So Paul says, no, 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 this is not true. Here's the thing. There are really two great afflictions that have come upon the church throughout church history, and they're seen here in the church in Thessalonica. The first affliction comes from without. Those are on the outside of the church, persecution, opposition. This church in Thessalonica was experiencing severe persecution. The church through the centuries has experienced severe persecution persecution, but probably worse than outward persecution is the second affliction that Paul's dealing with here, inward false teaching. When false teaching arises within the church, that actually does far more damage than persecution on the outside of the church. And so here the false teaching, again, is that Christ has already returned. Now, this same false teaching is finding itself in our world today. I'll give you one example. There is a false teaching that Christ has already come back. Look at this next slide. This is a picture of Charles Taze Russell. He's the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Charles Taze Russell put forth this concept, this idea, this falsehood, that Christ returned on October 1st, 1914. And the Jehovah's Witnesses today still hold to that date. They believe Jesus has come back, but he came back spiritually. He came back in an unseen way. He came back imperceptibly. Make no mistake, when Jesus returns, you're going to know. It's not going to be a secret. It's not going to be unmistakable. It's not going to be spiritual. You're going to know when Christ 
comes back. And so Paul wants these Thessalonians, he wants these Jehovah's Witnesses, he wants us to know this has not yet occurred. And here's how you can know it's not yet happened. That leads to the third thing this morning, the signs which correspond to the parousia and the gathering together of God's elect. There are really two signs that Paul points out here in this passage, in verse 3 particularly, and we're going to mention them today, but come back next week and the week after that because we're going to tease these out further and try to understand these fully. What exactly it is? He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless. What's he saying? That day when the parousia and the gathering together of God's elect, that day will not come, this is the subject matter, unless, and then he gives two signs. These two things must happen before Jesus returns. Here's the first one. Number one, the rebellion against Christ. The rebellion against Christ. Again, he says, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Again, I'll explain these things in much greater detail in the next two weeks, these two signs, and we're just going to introduce them today. The first primary sign Paul refers to, the ESV translates it as rebellion. The Greek word there that's being translated is the Greek word apostasia. That's why the New American Standard translates this word apostasy. But how many of you know what apostasy means? Okay, not many of us. The King James Bible actually translates it this way, falling away, falling away. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now, falling away is certainly included in an apostasy, but it's much deeper and much more sinister than that. That's why I think the ESV is really the best translation. This is a rebellion. It's not just that people fall away from church. It's not just that people fall away from the faith. There is an active opposition against Christ and against his people. Do we see that? There is this rebellion. There's a great rebellion that is going to come. And again, this great rebellion against Christ and against his church, it occurs before Christ comes back. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Then the second thing, not only the rebellion, but secondly, the rise of Antichrist. The rise of Antichrist. Again, within this sentence, for that day will not come unless the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Paul describes this person, the man of lawlessness. He's referred to in different ways with different titles and different descriptions throughout the New Testament. The Lord Jesus referred to this person as the one who does the abomination of desolation. Um, the, uh, The apostle John, as he wrote the book of Revelation, he referred to him there as the beast. John, who also wrote his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, notice how he referred to him in 1st John chapter 2. Paul says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. So, we have these different titles, Antichrist, the beast, abomination of desolation, and here Paul refers to him as the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, and each of these are clear descriptions and titles for this individual. Again, come back next week. We're going to take a deep dive into the Antichrist, all right? We want to figure out some characteristics about this individual. Now, as we move towards a conclusion, as we're thinking about these signs that Paul gives here, the sign of the rebellion, the sign of the rise of the Antichrist, 
How, do we, how are we to interpret these things? How do we consider these things? Well, throughout church history, there have really been three main ways in which these concepts and these signs have been interpreted. I want to introduce them to you real quickly, uh, just so you understand. This is kind of the grid of hermeneutic that different theologians use. The first one is this. It's called the preterist view. The preterist view. Most of you probably never heard that word. It comes from the Latin word praetor, which means last or past. The preterist view holds that virtually all of the prophecies in the New Testament, so Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, Paul in First and Second Thessalonians, the book of Revelation, the preterist view holds that all of those predictions took place in the first century. They've already happened. They've already come to pass. These signs have already been met. And so they would see this concept of the rebellion. Was there a rebellion with great opposition against the church in the first century? Yes or no? Yes, there was. They see this concept of an antichrist, one who puts himself up as a, an individual leader who should be worshipped. Was there somebody like that in the first century? Yes, multiple. Nero, particularly the, the emperor of Rome, set himself up to be worshipped. And so the preterist view says, okay, all the predictions, the prophecies in the New Testament and Old Testament as well, they were accomplished and they were fulfilled in the first century. Now, there is some strength to this view because, listen, all the predictions have kind of roots in the first century. All the prophecies have some type of a, a, a basis in what goes on in the first century, and we can see this, for instance, even in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It falls right in line with this preterist view. Here's a second view, the historicist view. The historicist view. This view holds that the prophecies of the New Testament are really patterns we see throughout history. So throughout history, we see patterns of rebellion happening through every century. Throughout history, we see these antichrist figures who oppose God, who want to be worshipped. We see them rising up throughout history, right? I can remember when Ronald Reagan was elected president. Ronald Wilson Reagan, each of his names has six letters, six, six years, six. He's the antichrist, oh, right? Anybody remember that? Henry Kissinger, that was uh, Nixon's secretary of state. He's the Antichrist. There's all kinds of people that are put forward as the Antichrist. Well, throughout history, the historists would say, yes, there have been these patterns. There have been these processes, this phenomenon of rebellion and Antichrists. And so, really, there's some truth to that as well. We can see these patterns throughout uh, history. But here's the third view of how to interpret what we see in the Bible, and that is the futurist view. The futurist view says all the prophecies of the New Testament relate only to those things surrounding the immediate return of Jesus. Let me say that again. The futurist view says the prophecies of the New Testament relate only to those things surrounding the return of Jesus in that time. Now, there's a lot of strength to this view. Why? Because an awful lot of the prophecies of the book of Matthew and Mark, of First and Second Thessalonians, of Revelation, they've yet to be fully, completely fulfilled. Now, here's the thing. There is some value in each of these views. Are things rooted in the past of the first century? Yes. In fact, all prophecy, Old Testament, New Testament alike, it has a present-day application, and it has a future prediction. Let me say that again. All prophecy has a present-day application when it was written, and it has a future prediction. So 
we don't need to get stuck in just one of these and say, okay, this is the way we need to interpret this passage. And so I hope, hope that's as clear as mud for you this morning. <laughs> well, as we close this introductory message on this really sometimes confusing subject matter, I, I want us to just ask a question. What are we to do with all this? What are we to do with all this? This isn't on your outline, but I want you to just write on the back of your outline if you have it there in front of you. How to wait for Christ's return. We've talked a lot about the what, and next week and the week after, we're going to talk a lot about the what, the Antichrist, the, the rebellion, the apostasy. But what are we to do? How are we to wait for Christ's return? What, what kind of posture should we have with regard to the return of Jesus? Three things I want you to consider. You might want to write these down. First of all, we must have a posture of patience. We must have a posture of patience. You see, throughout every generation of church history, based upon the signs that were happening around them, every generation has thought, it must be this generation when Christ is coming back, right? You go back to Augustine in the 400s. At the fall of the Roman Empire, the great theologian Augustine thought, Jesus is coming back in my lifetime. Why? Because of all the cataclysmic things happening around him. You move forward to the Reformation in the 1500s. Virtually all the reformers were unanimous in that they said the Pope is the Antichrist. The Roman Catholic Church is, is the false government. You move forward to the 1600s. As much good as we can get from the, the Puritans, they actually predicted that in 1650 Christ was going to return. Jonathan Edwards, who was the principal preacher of the Great Awakening in these United States, he predicted a date. He predicted Christ was going to come back in 1866. And in our day and age, we have no shortage of people saying, this is the date when Christ is going to come back, right? It's ridiculous. What we need to have as we wait for Christ's return is a posture of patience. The Lord is not slow as you count slowness. He will accomplish all his purposes in his time. Friends, history is going somewhere. There is an end point. It's already been settled in the heart and the mind of God, and we're going there, right? So we must have a posture of patience. Here's the second way I would encourage you to wait. We must have a posture of readiness. Yes, we're patient, but we're also ready. How do we interpret those things that coincide with the Bible's predictions about Christ's return? Well, we live with a sense of readiness. We live with a sense of expectancy, that we are vigilant to be faithful to what the Lord's called us to do. We're vigilant to guard against false teaching that would seek to creep its way into the church. And we must be careful to guard against any, listen, any kind of allegiance to, t to some religious figure or some political leader. We worship God alone. In Matthew 25, Jesus followed up his teaching on the signs with a couple of parables. One parable was known as the parable of the wedding or the parable of the ten bridesmaids. And the way that story goes is there were ten bridesmaids who were in this wedding. They're waiting for the arrival of the groom. They all had their lamps. Well, five of the bridesmaids, they had only enough oil in their lamps to last a little while. Then the oil burned out. They didn't have any oil to refill it. The other five bridesmaids, they had their oil, and so when theirs burned out, they could pour more, more oil into it. And they were ready for the return of the groom. And Jesus concluded that parable with these words in Matthew 25, 13. He says, Watch therefore, 
for you know neither the day nor the hour. So Christian, though we don't know when that's going to happen, though we don't know the day or the hour, we keep our lamps lit. We must have a posture of readiness, waiting, expectant for the Lord to return. So we have a posture of readiness. We have a posture of patience. Here's the third thing. We have a posture of busyness. Posture of busyness. Following the parable of the ten's bridesmaid, Jesus gave another parable in Matthew chapter 25. This was the parable of the talents. Most of you are familiar with that parable. There was a master of a household, and he gave three of his servants different amounts of money. To one, he gave one amount. The most, to the second, he gave a little bit less. And to the third, he gave even less. When he left, he came back expecting these servants to have done something investment-wise with what he had given to them to steward and manage. So he goes to the first one who had the most, and he doubled his money. He says, good job. You doubled the money. He goes to the second servant who had a little bit less, and he said, what did you do with what I gave you? He says, well, I doubled it. Good job. You doubled the money. He gets to the third servant. He says, what did you do with the money I, I gave to you to manage and to steward? Well, I, I didn't invest it, and so I just buried it. Put it in a hole. He says, you could have just put the money in a bank and got a little interest. But to the first two, here's what he says. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Welcome in to the joy of your master. But to the unfaithful servant, the one who had been given even just a little bit and he did nothing with it, he said, depart from me. And he was excluded from the household of the master. This isn't in my manuscript, and sometimes that's dangerous when I veer off my manuscript, but as I was praying through this this morning, I thought about in Hebrews how there's the great cloud of witnesses. The faithful through the generations. And I don't know whether or not they can see what we're doing here right now, if they can see through eternity, but they are called a cloud of witnesses. And I have to wonder what believers in previous generations think about what we're doing with what we've been given. We've been given so much. We've more wealth, more resources, more capacity, more education, more opportunity than any generation for 7,000 years. What are we doing with it? You've been faithful with a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. We must be about the Lord's work and not distracted by these things that have no eternal value. We have a posture of busyness as we wait for the Lord's return. Yes, we are patient, we're expectant and ready, but we are busy utilizing all that he's entrusted to us. Can we know when the Lord's going to return exactly? No. We can't. We can learn much from the prophecies. We can be ready. We can be busy. We can be patient. But I can't wait 
to hear those words from Jesus that he spoke in Matthew 25, 34. And I hope they're spoken to you. He said, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I can't wait to hear those words. So when we hear things, wars and rumors of wars, political upheaval, conspiracy theories wrapping around our society, do not be afraid. These are all just birth pangs. Christ is coming back. He's coming to capture away his bride. This day of the Lord's return is the great consummation of our salvation. I'll close with this. I wrote this this morning. This idea came to me. There are really seven great acts in Jesus' work for our salvation. First is the act of incarnation. Christmas, we're celebrating in two months. Jesus took on human flesh. Act two, he was tempted in every way you and I are tempted, yet without sin. He never sinned. Act three, he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. He was crucified on the cross to take the punishment, the penalty for your sin and for my sin. Act four, he was buried. That means he was dead. He was three days dead. Act five, he was resurrected on that first Sunday morning. He came up out of the grave to give life to all who trust in him. Act 6, he ascended 40 days later to sit at the right hand of the Father on high. And now he always makes intercession for us on our behalf. Act 7, he's coming again. Salvation is not complete until Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back, we will no longer know sin. We will no longer have the penalty and the presence and the power of sin. We will be rescued. And friends, this is our blessed hope. Be settled. Settled. Calm down. We have a hope. Jesus is coming back. And that leads to my last thought. The promise of Christ's return moves us to hope and not fear. Hope, not fear. 